Thank you, Joanne. I appreciate that very much. Take your Bible, turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. You know, as we have worked through this book, uh, some of you might be having uh, wor- be worried right now. You think, wait a second, we just, we just finished Acts and you're going back to chapter 1. What's happened? Um, yeah, don't worry. Uh, today, we, I've done this a few times as I've been able, been, um, had the privilege of preaching through different books of the Bible. Our strategy here when it comes to preaching and teaching the Word of God is called expository preaching. That is, we believe to preach the Bible and preach what the Bible says. And uh, after I finish a book, uh, I, I've, I really enjoy going back and doing a, a single sermon with the point of what is the main idea of this book. Uh, one of the things that I, I wish our, more people in our church could do was to think, think about a book of the Bible and understand what the book is saying, understand what God is teaching us through this book uh, and, and this book uniquely. And what is God doing uh, with this book? And, and hopefully this will be uh, some, something of that for you in equipping a helpful uh, walk through this book. And, and perhaps if you missed a little bit of this series, this will get you a glimpse of a little bit of what, what this, this book is all about. You know, if you drive through most cities in the, in the U.S. And, and definitely most cities in the South, you find uh, churches everywhere, church building after church building, sometimes on competing. I think there's even one uh, corner in Rock Hill where I think there are three churches on one corner in Rock Hill, downtown Rock Hill. There are three different churches and there are churches everywhere. In fact, if you uh, look around, you find different denominations, you find different styles of churches, even different church logos. Uh, some churches uh, seem to reflect uh, corporate kind of production levels. Uh, some churches are consumed with what seems like political power. It, it, what is the vision God has for the church? Why, why do we exist? Why does the church exist and why should we exist? Uh, what is the foundation upon which we have been founded as a church? Why, why are we doing what we're doing, and what is our call? God gives us in the Bible, the book of Acts, as a history book for the church. It's like a picture of the early church. It is the birth of the church that shows us what God did and why God did it. This is a, a God-focused book. Even though it tells us about what people are doing, God is the worker behind the scenes, sometimes right in front, doing tremendous work. In fact, if we don't have a clear vision of what God has given us and what we're supposed to be doing, we will, as a church and as a culture, we will drift from the purpose God has given us, and we will just gravitate towards the way the world does things. We'll start doing things worldly ways. And so uh, the challenge for us today is to be biblical, to look at what God has done, and to believe it and to obey it. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll dive into this tremendous book, the book of Acts. Father, we thank you. You've given us a picture of the birth of the church, a historical picture of how the church was birthed by your strength and your power through your spirit for your purposes. And I pray that we would see this picture today and be renewed in our efforts to not only love the church, to prioritize the church, to understand your program, what you're doing through the church, but God, that we would defend the church and speak to the truth of your word and, and obey the truth of your word. And, and Lord, that we would be rejuvenated in our hearts and renewed in our spirits and excited uh, with boldness about what you've called us to do and the, and the power you've called us to use for that. Lord, I pray that today would be an exciting day as we look at your word, that we would be thrilled to know that you're at work and we thank you, God, for your power. We thank you for the Spirit of God here and among, among us today. I pray for your presence in my words. Lord, I pray that you would also give us 
uh, pull, pull away the sin that is in our hearts, Lord, and forgive us of our, our weaknesses and our sin, and help us, Lord, to be, to be open before you now and ready to find the transforming power of the Spirit in our lives, Lord. Bless now this service, bless as you've already blessed the singing, and thank you, Lord, for the time we've spent worshiping you. I pray that this time where the Bible is opened would be a special time of worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised his coming Holy Spirit would equip the apostles to go into the world, to perform miracles, and to preach the Word. And in fact, as you read Acts 1, he says, the former account I made, or the former volume I wrote, O Theophilus, of all the things Jesus began to do and teach. That's talking about the gospel of Luke. And the same writer here, Luke, the writer of Luke, also writes Acts, and he writes Acts as a picture of what Jesus continued to do and to teach through the apostles' ministry. And what we'll find is the power of God on display, because what God does, I've called this message, to the ends of the earth. The first thing God does in the book of Acts is God gives the church a singular mission. Would you read with me in the first few verses, or actually skip down to verse 4? as we see as this mission from the church that God, we are to follow His commission. Jesus begins the book of Acts here as He is raised from the dead. He has died on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He's standing with the apostles, and He gives them a job, a commissioning. verse 4, it says, being assembled together with them, He, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you have heard from Me, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There's the promise of the Spirit. Verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Look at verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is just blowing their minds at this point because these are fearful people. Yes, they'd seen Jesus rise from the dead, but these are normal people. These are fishermen and, and, and tradesmen. These are tax collectors. And, and they're looking at each other thinking, we, we don't have a lot of strength. When Jesus, after he died, they went, remember, they went and hid in a house by themselves. They were scared of what might happen if people were to, to find them. And Jesus says, don't worry, because you will receive power once the Spirit comes upon you. They will be witnesses about Jesus. It's amazing to consider that Jesus picked these men to be his witnesses. He did not pick a bunch of lawyers. He did not pick a bunch of really smart people who were very educated. He picked these normal people to be his witnesses all over the world. Jesus' witnesses would not stay in Jerusalem forever the gospel would spread far beyond where they were. It would go to Judea and Samaria. It would go to the, the end of the earth. And so Jesus gave his disciples a singular mission. We also have this mission uh, given to us in Matthew chapter 28, often called the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. At the end of that, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives us a commission, and we as a church have this mission. And we are to follow his commission, and because we can do this because we are enabled by His power. If you skip forward one chapter to Acts chapter 2, immediately we have the story of Pentecost. And in Acts 2, 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly 
there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want you to notice the disciples are not strong in their own strength. The disciples are not strong because of their own giftedness. The disciples were strengthened by the Spirit of God. And God's Holy Spirit came in that room in an undeniable way with a rushing mighty wind, a sound of wind, which the word wind and spirit in the New Testament is the same root word there. And as, as, as the rushing Spirit of God came into that room, it says there appeared on their heads like, clo- like, like tongues of fire. A fire often is described like a tongue because it looks like one, doesn't it? If you look at a, a fire out of a fire pit, it looks like a tongue. And those fire was above, that fire was above their head, and they began to speak in other tongues. These tongues were languages which they did not know. They were not babbling incoherently like you might see on late-night television. These men were speaking languages which they did not know study, which they did not know. It's clear from the context. It's clear from the following verses. And God's power became so obvious. If God was going to call these men to go to the end of the earth to speak the gospel to people who did not yet know about the gospel, who spoke other languages, they had to be equipped to do so. And so God supernaturally equipped these men to speak other languages. Look at verse 7. The power of God was so obvious that people had to ask, what is going on? They were all amazed and marveled as they spoke publicly these other languages, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it we hear each in our own language in which we were born? These men who come, foreigners coming and hearing these Galilean, these backwoods, uh, hill country people, not the kind of people. You know, if there was a city person who had studied, perhaps you would say, okay, maybe they studied this language. But this guy is not that kind of guy. This is a man who is a fisherman. What is he doing speaking flawless whatever language he was speaking? God equipped, and God gives power here to the apostles. And notice they serve in the name of Jesus. Skip forward a chapter. We're going to, like I often describe, we're going to be skipping across the surface of Acts like you might skip a rock across a pond, okay? We're going to touch down in several places. We're not going to go very deep. But I want you to see the picture of what's happening here in the book of Acts. As we get to Acts chapter 3, we have Peter and John coming to the temple. And, and as Jesus had promised his disciples would perform miracles, the miracles they performed were not showmanship. This is very important. They were not tricksters, they were not performing miracles just to impress people, just to say, look at me, look what I can do. They did not perform miracles to, to do that for their own benefit. In fact, the reason they performed miracles was for the name of Jesus, to give validity to their message and their ministry. Look at verse 1. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms for those who enter the temple. A man just wants to have money. He needs money to live because he cannot work because his legs are lame. Verse 3, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for money. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. It appears the man was just blindly asking for everybody, but Peter made him look. He said, look at us. So he gave him his attention. He stopped what he was doing. He focused there on Peter, and he, and, and he expected to receive something from them. But they wouldn't give him something far greater than money. Verse 6, Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. 
and the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. I love this verse. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. There was a, a restriction at the time of those who were lame and those who were maimed could not enter the temple. And this man, healed by Jesus, could go into the temple. And as he walked into the temple, he was walking and leaping. Now, I don't know about you, but like if you get up from a nap, your legs are tired and you're not feeling like walking and leaping. You have to like like gingerly move around, right? This man was not just given the ability to walk. He was supernaturally given strength, and he was rejoicing at the fact that God had given him his balance, his strength, everything he needed. So he was walking and leaping and praising God for everyone, and they, verse 10, knew that it was he who sat begging alms in the beautiful gate. They couldn't deny it. This is the same man. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. But I want you to notice what he says back in verse 6. How did he heal him? In the name of whom? Jesus of Nazareth. He points to Jesus. He says, we are here to serve and to love people in the name of Jesus. God gave the church a singular mission very early on. And God then prepared the church to face opposition. We see opposition as a theme throughout the book of Acts. Opposition doesn't come super early. It starts to come right about Acts chapter 4. And with the story of opposition in the book of Acts is this, that people try to stop the church. They try to, to prevent the gospel from moving. But every time, everything they did that was, that was to prevent the gospel from moving forward actually did nothing more then enable the gospel to move forward. Acts chapter 4, we see opposition from religious people, from the religious, and, and they spoke to the people. Verse 1, the priests, the captains of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they, the religious people, laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day that laid hands is a nice way of saying they roughed them up. It was already evening, verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed the number of men came to be about 5,000. And in verse 13, it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and realized they had been with Jesus and seeing the man who was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred amongst themselves and said, what shall we do to these men? Verse 16, for indeed, that a noble miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. They know the truth, verse 17, but so that this spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no more, uh, that they speak to no man in this name. It's amazing that they know the truth. They know what has happened, but they refuse to believe it. They refuse to submit to it. And so what do they do? They say to Peter, They called them and commanded them, verse 18, not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. I love verse 20. He says, for we cannot but speak the things which we have heard and seen. They were willing to speak because they had religious people who opposed them. They did not allow that to prevent them from speaking the gospel. In chapter 5, look at chapter 5 and verse 38 through 39. There is a council of people. These, these religious men get together. How are we going to defeat this new upstart religion? What are we going to do? This man named Gamaliel stands up and he says, look, here's, here's my suggestion, my advice. 
in verse 38, he says, I, I think the best thing to do is if we, if we just need to ignore them, because if this is, if this is uh, of the work of men, look at verse 38, if I, I keep away from these men, let them alone. If this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. He says, you better be careful. If, you, if we oppose this and this is God's work, we're in trouble. But if we, just, if we just leave it alone, it'll go away if it's of men. In chapter 7, we're not going to get into too many details here, but in chapter 7, beginning in verse 51 through 58, we see the martyrdom of Stephen. The oppression of the religious people comes to the fullness here when Stephen, one of the original deacons, is martyred. He is stoned to death because of his testimony of the faith and his testimony of the resurrection and Jesus Christ. There will be opposition that came from the powerful religious community. And I think the same thing exists today. Those who have great power on this earth do not like to give up that power because Jesus demands all power. And so these religious folks oppose, but there's opposition that even came from within the church or inside the church. Acts chapter 5, if you go back for a few minutes to Acts chapter 5, you have opposition there because you have two folks named Ananias and Sapphira who tried to use the church as a way to promote themselves. They sold a piece of land, it says, and they kept back part of the profit for themselves, and they lied to the church by saying that what they gave to the church was everything they had. They wanted the, the approval of mankind, but they didn't want the sacrifice that was required for that approval. They saw that Joseph, another man named uh, Barnabas, who we'll find out more about later, Barnabas had sold a piece of land, had given it to the church, and people were amazed that this man who was known for his accumulating wealth had been willing to give up this for the benefit of the religious community. So they wanted their own glory. They wanted their own benefit. And so this opposition, this problem came from within the church as Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, and they both are dealt with harshly. God deals with them through Peter. And we see this in this chapter that Ananias walks in and says, this is everything I have. And Peter confronts him and says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit and to God? And it says in verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. God dealt harshly with the church who lied. And then Sapphira comes in just afterwards. And Peter asks her the same question, and the same men who buried her husband buried her. We see opposition from the religious from within the church, and then also from a very specific man named Saul. Would you look to chapter 8 with me? Keep turning in your Bible, Acts chapter 8. Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions except the apostles. The great persecution happened in Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And the opposition came upon the church, and God used this opposition to spread the word. Verse 4, therefore those who scattered went everywhere preaching the word. God used opposition to spread the word of God everywhere they went. Let's keep going because God blessed the church. God blessed the church. He prepared the church, and He blessed the church with unexpected converts. What a tremendous story in Acts chapter 9, because the man who we just saw was wreaking havoc among the church. The biggest surprise, in fact, is how God uses unlikely people to do His work, and I think Paul might have been the most unlikely of converts you can imagine. 
Here's a guy who is the enemy. He's not just passive. He is the enemy of the church. He is rounding up people in the church and, and, and oppressing them. And in Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul, breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters for him to go to Damascus, that if he found anywhere who were, in their way, who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then while he's there, suddenly a light appears to him on the road to Damascus and confronts him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Jesus confronts Paul. Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. And he noted, he identifies with the church who is being persecuted by Paul. We see Ananias come into the, different Ananias come into the picture in verse 10. A certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Jesus tells Paul to go, and Paul immediately obeys. Jesus tells Ananias, go find Paul. And Ananias says, hang on, Lord. I've heard of this guy. I've heard he's really bad. Are we talking about the same Saul? And God uses this Ananias to go and to accept Saul into the church. Verse 13, Lord, I have heard about many from this man, how much harm he has done to your saints, how he has authority to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15, God says, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then he lays his hands on him in verse 17. He enters the house. He says, brother Saul, the Lord has appeared to me. Look at verse 20. Immediately after receiving his sight again, after um, uh, being commissioned by Ananias, he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. God blessed the church with unexpected converts. Number four, God designed the church to promote unity among Christians. There is another theme that runs through the book of Acts, which is that God has designed the church to work and function in a way that promotes and helps the believers. Greatest example of this is back in Acts chapter 6, we see deacons established, promoting unity in the church. There's a problem that many of the widows in the church, you have Hellenistic Jews and what I call Jew-Jews. You have the Jewish Jews and you have the Greek Jews. And, and, uh, and between these two, there's a great divide. The, the Jewish Jews look at the Greek Jews and think they're compromisers. And the Greek Jews look at the Jewish Jews and think they're being uh, neglected because they're being looked down upon because they are more Greek than they are Jewish in their culture. Yet both are still Jews. And they're in the church and they're fighting with one another and they're arguing with one another so that the, the Hellenistic Jews look at the Jewish Jews and says, we're being ignored. There's this daily distribution for all the widows, and and it goes to all the Jewish Jews, but to all of us Hellenistic Jews, all us Greek Jews, we're not getting as much as we need. And there's this argument that develops and this problem that develops, and the apostles decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give seven honorable men to serve the church. And these seven men are going to do a simple thing. They are going to promote unity by solving problems. They're going to see this problem, and they're going to resolve this issue by, by ministering effectively to the whole congregation. And the deacons do just that. This is the solution the church comes with. They appoint these seven men filled with the Holy Spirit of God and of wisdom, verse 3. They give themselves, they want to, the apostles want to give themselves continually to prayer. And the result is in verse 7. It says that, and the word of God spread. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and even a great many of priests were obedient to the faith. God blessed the deacons and their work. Praise the Lord for deacons. The function of deacons at Harvest Baptist Church, we try to be biblical in our function, and this is something I brought before our deacons, that our deacons promote unity by solving problems. 
And, and the goal of a deacon is to allow us to spend time in the Word and in prayer. And there are so many administrative things and so many little detailed things that our deacons do an excellent job of. Thank the Lord that God designed the church to promote unity among Christians. But God also ha- gave clarity on fellowship. We see in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we're not going to go into details, but there's a man named Cornelius who is a, who is a Gentile. And then, and then Paul and Peter is, is standing there. God gives him a vision of the food that is delivered down from heaven. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And it's unclean and clean animals. And Peter says, not so, Lord. And once again, one of, one of the disciples saying no to God. And God says, no, well, you have to do this because, because now you eat. You see, food is a sign of fellowship, a sign of, of friendship. You come together, you eat at a table together. And, and in order for the church to be both Jew and Gentile together, you have to be able to eat at the same table. And so God declares all foods to be clean. And he does that here in Acts chapters 10 and 11. We see this trem- on, on tremendous display when, the, when Peter goes and he speaks to these Gentiles and they are filled with the Spirit of God. They are baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit. They are believers. There's also clarity given on salvation in Acts chapter 15 because there's a problem. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah who comes to the Jews, speaks in the Jewish tongue. He fulfills the Old Testament Jewish Scripture. His ministry was fully and thoroughly Jewish, but in his commissioning to the church, Jesus commands that the gospel be taken to the whole world beyond the Jewish people. Jesus did not mean that they should take the message to the Jews who are out there, but that they should take the message to everyone in the whole world. And so here, the Gentiles being included in the body of believers creates a problem. Do they need to become Jews before they can become Christians? This is a real problem, a real question. Because the Old Testament has ways in which you could become a Jewish person. Like if you wanted to join yourself by covenant to the covenant people of God, there was a process you could go through to become a Jewish person. We see pagans doing that. We see uh, Gentiles becoming part of the Jewish family. And, and, and so people were, were saying that. In fact, if you look at uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That it's like you have to have a Jewishness as a prerequisite to Christ. But the gospel is clear in the Bible. And, and in Acts chapter 15, the gospel is made extra clear, is, is explicitly clarified. That is not, it is not about becoming a Jew first in order to be saved. That, that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not a result of works. It's not of anything that we can do. In fact, if you go down to verse 11... He says, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. That both Jew and Gentile will be saved in the same manner by grace through faith. And we can be rejoicing at that today. Praise God. There was clarity on fellowship. There was clarity on salvation. Number five, what does God call the church to do? He calls the church to go to the world. And this is the rest of of what we see in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. Go to Philippi. And Paul there with, now called Paul, he was called Saul, then he goes by the name Paul. He's there with Silas, and they are thrown in jail. And while they're in jail, they're victims of a mob. They're singing hymns to God in the middle of the night in a prison 
when God shakes the jail with an earthquake so that the bars of the jail are broken and their chains come off and the jailer wakes from sleep, sees the chaos around him and wants to kill himself because he realizes that if these men are gone, then my life is as good as, as dead. And Paul stops him. And in verse 30, he brings them out And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? How ironic that the jailer is asking the prisoners how to be rescued. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. It's not just you. It's your household. Your household can be saved too. And the man does that. He gets saved. His household gets saved. They baptize him as a new believer. He then goes in Acts chapter 17 to minister Thessalonica, but also down to Berea and then to Athens. And when Paul gets to Athens, he's spoken to many Jewish believers. He's spoken to many different Jewish people in synagogues. Now he goes to a place where there are pagans gathered on Mars Hill. And there he finds a tomb, or not a tomb, but an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And Paul preaches to these men. He says, you who say to the unknown God, let me tell you who this unknown God is. He is not unknown. He is known, and He has revealed Himself to us. And He gives the story of Jesus coming, coming as a man, and then presenting Himself, and dying for our sins, and rising again. Some believe, and some scoff. He goes to Ephesus, and there's a riot there because some idol makers. Look at verse 23. There was a great commotion, Acts chapter 19, verse 23, because a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, made shrines to Diana, made a lot of money doing so, Verse 25, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation, said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away people saying that these are not gods that are made by hands. The evangelism was putting these men out of business. What an amazing testimony that Christianity being spread all over the world was putting people out of business. And so what happens? They got a mob. They go against him. They riot against this, these idol makers. They, they, the city clerk was able to quiet the crowds. And then they go off and they, they, they uh, minister to other people. They serve there by, by traveling there to, um, to Troas and Miletus. And then he greets many Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. And he pours his life back into them and he explains his philosophy of ministry. All of this happens as Paul then testifies. He goes to Jerusalem and he testifies before the Jerusalem mob. He's brought before Felix. He's brought before Festus. He's brought before Agrippa. We've seen over and over again Paul brought before governors, just like Christ said he would. Brought before kings. And he presents the gospel. He presents the truth. And sent to Rome, Paul is now living under house arrest, receiving everyone who comes to him, the gospel not being bound. No one preventing him, as the last few words of Acts describe for us. The gospel is to go to the whole world, and we are to carry it there. As I was thinking through the book of Acts, as I've been preaching through this book, I knew I'd be coming up to this message, and so I I started just stashing away themes that started coming to my mind as I I did this. And I have several here, and these are not on your your sheet. You can write them on the back somewhere. I'm just going to walk through these on the screen, and I encourage you to think about what these themes mean for us today as we conclude. The book of Acts teaches us that God uses normal people to do extraordinary things. A lot of people have a, have a sense that they are not good enough or they are not qualified enough to be used by God. 
I, I think that you should dispel that notion right away. No, there's not a person here who can't be used by God. Think about all the unusual people God uses in His Word. He even uses, in, in 2 Kings 5, He uses a little girl who's a slave girl in a foreign country to tell her boss about God. God uses fishermen, fishermen who are not known to be eloquent, who are not known to be uh, uh, very sophisticated, yet they were bold. God can use ordinary people, normal people, to do extraordinary things. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, this phrase, it says, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Those who have turned the world upside down. The disciples were known as men who turned the world upside down. You would never have ever predicted that if you'd looked at these men before they met Jesus. God uses normal people to do extraordinary things. God uses former enemies to accomplish His purpose. God did this in Saul's life, in Paul's life, through the method of conversion. God God converts enemies. We need to remember that rather than hating those who are God's enemies, we ought to pray for them and love them. The reason is, is because God changes hearts. God changes people, and the person right now who is your enemy might end up being a great friend. The Bible's full of examples of this. History is full of examples of this. One simple story of this is John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, was known as a slave trader in the transatlantic slave trade. He was a a ship captain on the transatlantic slave trade, selling people into slavery. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He was a violent, wicked, horrible man who cursed at God constantly, yet God got a hold of his heart, and he was converted. He came to Christ. He was transformed, and he gave us probably the world's most famous hymn, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And friends, he meant it when he said he was a wretch because he truly, objectively was a wretch. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When you think about people like that, God can take someone like John Newton, God can take someone like the Apostle Paul who hates him and turn him to be a great servant for him. Thirdly, God spreads His Word through His own servants' personal sacrifices. This gets a little more personal that every disciple in the book of Acts made huge sacrifices, from Stephen who lost his life to Paul and his companions who were victims of mob violence and shipwreck. God uses all kinds of men, but these men need to be willing to make personal sacrifices. God uses men and women for His purpose, but you have to be willing to sacrifice. And my question to you is, are you willing to make sacrifices? We are, we are very comfortable people. We don't like moving beyond our comfort zone. If there's not air conditioning, we're not sure we want to go. God uses people, His servants, who are willing to make personal sacrifices. That is obviously evident in the book of Acts. God has built His church for the care of the believers. I, I talked about that quite a bit as the institution of deacons. We see this from Paul's personally investing in people how Paul returned to the same places he visited and founded churches, how he, how he checked on them, how he, he ministered to them, how he did not just leave them on their own. God structures his church for the benefit of believers, and God shows his love for people and how he does this. And lastly, I'd like to say that, that God expects his servants to defend and proclaim the truth. 
We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Others did this too. Think about how he defended before mobs, before governors, to his own brothers and sisters, Jews, before his own countrymen. He defended the gospel before pagans. In every place, Paul defended and proclaimed the truth. The birth of the church is a story of how God uses very insignificant, very normal people to accomplish his purpose. As we finish, I'd like to conclude from a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put it up on the screen. But I, I think this is fitting. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, talks about his prayer. And he asked them to pray for him because his desire was that the Word of God has power and that it runs freely. I love this phrasing. Look how he says this. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have the faith, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Would you pray that the Word of God be swift and run with, run forward, and it will have an impact? The Word of God has obviously had an impact on many lives here today. There are many people whose lives have been transformed by the power of the Word of God. And what he says here is, I want God's Word to have that same impact everywhere. I wonder if you'd pray for that to have to happen. I wonder if your heart would be a missions-minded heart. One of the reasons we talked about the book of Acts and we decided to preach through the book of Acts in the past year was because it became a burden to me uh, in the past several years to notice how many people consider church a non-essential. People consider church something not important. We find from the gospel the power of the Word of God and the importance of the local church ministering to each other, spreading the gospel outward, and going for the sake of His name. We are here to go for the name of Jesus. We're not here for ourselves. We don't put, we're not going to put our name in big lights. We want to put His name up there. We want to proclaim Him. We want to make God big. We want to make God glorified by what we do and say. I challenge you this week. I hope this has been a tremendous challenge for you. This book has just has helped me so much to get a picture of what God is doing in the church. I hope that you could say the same that God is moving forward. God is on the march. God is on the move. It's exciting to see as our small little community here of believers can pray, we can fund uh, worldwide missions. I hope that some people here, there might be young people, might be older people who say, I want to go and serve God full-time and do this or that. I want to serve the Lord with all my heart. You can serve God in your current occupation wherever you are. You can do great things for the Lord as long as we take the gospel, as the Bible says, says, to the end of the earth. We ought to be always striving to take the gospel wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us to be sensitive to your truth. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word, for this book that has taught us uh, the power of the gospel to transform a life. We thank you of the examples of men like the Apostle Paul who were great enemies of the faith but yet turned to being the great evangelists and missionaries for the church, for you, and for the gospel. Thank you for a life fully submitted to you that will be willing to do anything, go anywhere, 
Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be fully submitted to you. Right now, I pray that you would um, uh, convict hearts if there are people who are holding back, not willing to submit, not willing to give of themselves to you. Father, may they today raise their hands and their, or raise their hearts to you and say, yes, Lord, I, I will go wherever you call me. I will do whatever you say. I will be a servant of the Lord. I will follow you wherever you lead because we know that you have great plans for us. You are always good. You've always been good. And looking back, we can see how you have, have been faithful to us. And so we ask you, Lord, to continue to show your faithfulness in the future. We pray all of this in the sweet name of